Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dan Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Mouse. Hi. Hi. Hi, end of the year. Oh, man. It's the end of the year. It's our last interview. Of the year? Uh-huh. Mm, I don't like that. I'm sorry. Okay. There'll be a new year with We can't take our interviews. foot off the gas. We got to keep it <laughs> pegged, bored to the floor. We have Anderson Cooper today. Oh, what a great last interview of the year. Particularly fun for me because, and this comes up in the interview, but- as soon as I knew we had Anderson coming up, I had this anxiety of like, all I'm going to want to talk about is the Vanderbilts because yeah. I'm obsessed with Cornelius Vanderbilt. Yeah. And I was like, shit, he's not going to want to talk about Cornelius Vanderbilt. He's lived in the shadow of it. Well, by God, his fucking new book is about it. And I was like, oh my God, this is so wonderful. Uh, he has a new book called Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. And if you don't know this about Anderson Cooper, his great, great, great grandfather, I believe, was Cornelius Vanderbilt. You know, shipping, ferry, railroad, first hundred millionaire, first tycoon. So he tells us all about that family history, and it's so fascinating. Also, he's uh, he's so handsome to look at, too. Anderson? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. He talks a lot about his anxieties and stuff, which oh, we get into. It's great. Yeah, it was really to, fun. We wanted to nurture him, of course. Yeah, of course. Our favorite thing. Please enjoy Anderson Cooper and check out his book, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, getting ready for a marathon, or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com running to learn more. We are supported by Ollie. I love Ollie. Yeah, they're delicious, aren't they? Yeah, it's kind of annoying because I want to eat more. Yeah, well, yes, that is the only downside of Ollie is you want to eat the whole jar. <laughs> now, as you all know, I have kids, and that means it's always about them. But look, I need some support too, and that's where Ollie comes in. My mom uses Ollie. She does. Yeah, and she has it out on the kitchen table so she won't forget. Oh, sure. So it's like a Stay permanent cool. decoration. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the same way, my Ollie sleep aid is on the nightstand next to my bed. So it too is a permanent There you fixture. go. So this year, I'm doing wellness on my own terms, and so can you with delicious vitamins and supplements from Ollie. Go to Ollie.com, O-L-L-Y.com to discover the sleep, mood, and multivitamin supplements we take every day and get 15% off your first order by using the code SPOTIFY15. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. He's an armchair expert. He's an armchair expert. Oh, my Lord. Can you hear me well? I can. Wow. Okay. Your guys are there. You're living. Wow. We're here. Cool. I know. I feel the same way looking at you. Like, I'm just. This is very strange. You're alive. You're on the computer. You're a real person. <laughs> we think. Yeah, I got a room and everything. I got a hat on. Got a big light behind you in case it's needed. Uh, your chair, though. My God. Your chair. The discrepancy, first of all, between your <laughs> Thank chairs. Thank you for is noticing. Startling. That. Thank you. The discrepancy. <laughs> the incongruity. Well, yes. you must know that we select our own chairs. So it's, this is not. Well, uh, believe me. <laughs> obviously. This is like a Rorschach test. Are you kidding me? It should tell you a lot about us. I am um, function over fashion, and she is fashion right. over function. I could care less how it feels, as long as it's beautiful. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I think, Monica, you win on both accounts. I mean, that doesn't look comfortable, Dax. That looks like— A fucking uh, lazy—watch this, Anderson Cooper. 
No, I uh, look that. No, okay, that's that's good. It's zero gravity. Is that really comfortable? I just feel like you're too too vulnerable. No, this is going to speak immediately to our different socioeconomic upbringing. So, in my blue collar (laughs) neighborhood, you are the king of the castle if you had a lazy boy, and I think that's why it feels differently to me. I'm sure it does. I get. I'm sure I've loaded on all this importance to it that doesn't exist. No, actually, I think that's an interesting (laughs) socioeconomic take on it, which I hadn't considered. See, I didn't believe things should be too pleasurable. I believe that there should be suffering involved. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to enjoy something too much like that, it's like opening yourself up to weakness. And indulgent. Well, you must yes. you must know Paul Bloom. So we just interviewed him and he that's his new book. I mean, you, you should try to schedule in a good deal of suffering to have a meaningful life. I fully am on board with that, <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, I was born a wasp. We don't believe in too much enjoyment or happiness and what little we have, we push deep down inside. <laughs> oh, and we're, we're gonna, gonna get, get in, in to the many layers that is the <laughs> Anderson cake, but I gotta start with a couple of just cursory things I want you to know. A, I fucking love you, like a huge fan, really, really excited Thank to you. be interviewing you. Two, I can't, Tell if I met you or I had an extremely protracted dream thinking I met you. So I hope to clear that up. And then third, to set the full table, as it was leading up to this interview, I was a little bit like, what's going to be annoying about this interview is I'm a Cornelius Vanderbilt nerd. And I'm going to want to talk to him about, I'm not kidding. I'm going to want to talk to him about this so much. And he's not going to want to talk about that. And then your goddamn book is Vanderbilt. So when I started researching, you, I was like, oh, this is such a dream come true because I'm obsessed with Cornelius. Okay, by the way, the first time anybody has ever said that sentence to me. That they're obsessed with Cornelius Vanderbilt? Yeah, anyone who's like, yeah, beneath the age of like 70 and whose last name isn't Vanderbilt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just to let you in on the breadcrumb trail that led me to him is I got recommended to read Titan. Have you read Titan? Of course. Just love it. And then so I just went on this course of the patrician class, the original tycoon. There's that great book about your great-great-grandfather, the first tycoon. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. And to see the difference between your great-great-great-great-grandfather and say, what do you- Four greats? I don't know, how many greats is it? I do that all the time. Before I wrote this book, I honestly could not have told you how many greats it was. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know who his son was that I was related to. I kind of knew who my great-grandfather was, but he also had the name Cornelius. It was all very confusing. confusing. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you got to fold in Carnegie in there. And so just, I think I'm obsessed with the, the notion of how th- those three people navigated their lives so differently. Yeah. And how they- created their wealth was so different. I don't know, I just find it fascinating. So I'm so fucking delighted you've written a book on this topic. (laughs) Now, can we clear up number two? Do you have any memory of us meeting? I feel like I have, but I too, it's interesting you said the dream thing because there are entire events in my life that I'm still to this day not sure if it was a dream or if it actually happened. I had an experience in what was then Zaire in Central Africa in 1996 that I swear to God, I was there and this crazy thing happened. (laughs) I'm still not entirely sure it happened. This is why you need a travel buddy at all times. So what was the crazy (laughs) thing that may or may not have happened? I mean, it's it's too long to really go into. Then it's a dream. I can answer it right now. (laughs) So basically, I don't. So there, you know, there was the genocide in Rwanda. Yes. In 100 days in mid 1994, April. And I was there briefly. I'd spent a lot of time in Rwanda over the years, going back to when I was like 17. I was fascinated by Central Africa. I was obsessed by Zaire as a kid. 
Rwanda's right next door to what's now Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly Zaire. Monica, you look like you've already fallen asleep. No, I'm but, here. Um, this is my listening phase, I promise. Okay, fine. Actually, truly what was happening is Rob's taking pictures, and I'm now hyper aware of when Rob's taking pictures that my oh, face yes. doesn't look disgusting. So I'm trying no. to- <laughs> She's man I'm managing a lot. Okay. So anyway, the Hutus who were behind the genocide, they were gradually forced out of Rwanda as the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, came in and took back the country and they were the current leadership and they stopped the genocide. A lot of the people who committed the genocide and were in and their families were in camps in Eastern Congo for about a year. And then there was a small rebel movement run by a guy named Kabila who came down from the north and he pushed the Hutu extremists out of the, he got them out of the camps. And a lot of them started walking into, deep into Zaire, just around the time of the fall of Mobutu. They end up outside Kisangani in the north and I happened to be there, and this group of untold numbers of people arrived after having walked reportedly for a year from the camps and end up stuck in like a jungle location outside the town of Kisangani. I get on a motorcycle with like two folks. I was at ABC News at the time. I was there covering the fall of Mobutu. We each get a guy who has a motorcycle and we, uh, we're like, each of us are a passenger on it. So like my cameraman, my sound guy, my producer, Clark Benson and I, we all go, we drive like five or six hours along like cow paths through the forests and jungles. And we find this group and we do a st story. I interview them. I talk to them. And can I ask really quick, this is like impromptu, right? You're there for Mumbutu and now yeah, this is a risen. but now this yeah, is happening. Okay. So anyway, I'm there, I interview them. Then we go drive the same five or six hours, whatever it is back. Anyway, we put together this story. It doesn't make air because of a whole bunch of internal reasons. It's ABC at the time. Peter Jennings didn't like the story or something, but it haunted me. And within a few days, as in my warped memory, they all disappeared. They all vanished. All the migrators. All of them. All the people who had gotten there were gone. Oh my and God. And then there were all these reports that local forces had come and wiped them out. Oh and gosh, that they were yeah. just gone. And so I found it to be this kind of haunting thing of like, what do you mean all these people just disappeared? What right. That doesn't make any sense. And your story never aired, so did you even do that? You know, like now you got Yeah, well, yes, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my God. I, I do have a few things. Some B-roll? I've B -roll. got some pictures. <laughs> I took pictures of me talking to these kids, so I okay. have the pictures, and then I ran into a guy doing Syrian refugees who were coming and landing on this Greek island, and the guy who was running a camp for, I think it was the International Rescue Committee, happened to mention this incident and that he was there. And I, my mind was blown. I was like, you were there, it happened. It really did happen. And so, yeah. At any moment did you think, oh, the fucking simulation, like uh -huh. it got a grid mix up. Like it put this character from a previous situation in this current yes, time frame. Exactly. Sometimes it does make mistakes, yeah. the simulation. Yeah. We found a couple. Yeah, yeah, that's actually the fun of being in the simulation is looking for the, the little glitches. So th this must be a big week for you guys with Meta. Now oh we're all going to be Oh my God, I can't even wrap my head around I refuse to learn it. what it is. I've seen like th three people have sent me links to it. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to give my time. I yeah. just refuse. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Until I'm participating, I guess. But you know, what you say is like, I suffer from it too, which is it's a fallout of privilege, which is like you and I most certainly could have met each other. So it's it's like right. 
we must consider the notion that we could have, and we don't want to be rude. But what is your feeling that we met? Oh, my God. So I have this, like, hazy memory of we're at this kind of event, and it's kind of outdoors, and you're maybe reporting on something, but then you and I end up going to the side and just chatting a little bit, and it's during COVID, but it during has COVID? to be fake. Like, I feel like I was in Connecticut yeah. or something. This, when this, this, this is this not isn't, No. Up. No, this, but I don't think this happened. Okay, good, good. Because, A, I can tell you the number of events I've been to in my life is small. No, no, no. This was like a, you were reporting on something, and oh, I, okay. for some reason, was, <laughs> fuck it. It's sounding more and more preposterous. At any rate, I have long wanted to meet you for a whole host of reasons. I think I had an awareness of you, but what really got me into you, which happens almost 100% of the time, is you did the third segment profile on 60 Minutes. And I am, I've said this so many times on here, like in the weirdest way, 60 Minutes is my religion. It was on every mm. Sunday at my grandparents' house. We, it was on when we started eating dinner. I just, the noise, I have all this Pavlovian response to it. Right, it just yeah, makes me, me feel too. gray. Yeah and, yeah, and I watch it. I watch it every Sunday. I DVR it, but whatever. I love that fucking show. Mm. And in your segment where I then learned that your mother was Gloria Vanderbilt, I already had this interest in the Vanderbilts. Just the whole profile, I just was like, Wow, you have such an incredible story. It's so fascinating. There's so many themes in it that I like, but I think what I'd like the most, if I could, just for a minute, is like, yeah, you grew up, I assume it was Upper East Side or something, somewhere nice yeah. in, in Manhattan. And then you just start regularly throwing yourselves into these insane situations, be it, like you said, Rwanda or you're down in Africa. You just keep putting yourself in all these bizarre places. And I remember being 20 so much and having like this crazy desire to be somehow adventurous in a Hemingway way and to find a voice in these travels. And and I just was curious, like what was leading the charge to all these bizarre drop-ins for someone who went to Yale or probably was on a certain path? Yeah. One, I didn't feel I was on a certain path and that terrified me. Like the fact that I had no idea what path I could possibly be on or would be on as I had no actual skill and had grown up in this very strange environment and amazing and privileged environment, obviously. Both my parents had been very creative, but my dad died when I was a kid and I viewed my mom lovingly, but as a emissary from a distant star that had burned out long ago. And she was on the ship that got away and it crash landed in New York and she gave birth to me and I had to like help her learn how to breathe oxygen and rent an apartment. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So when my dad died, I became very focused on survival. And when you're 10 and you lose a parent, for me, at least it completely changed who I was and how I thought about things. And the world became a very scary place. Well, is it too much to say that you become, at that point, you become your mother's son and partner? Oh, uh, yeah, I wasn't son. I was the chairman of the board, sort of. That okay. I, I, That's how I viewed my, like, I desperately wanted a board of my own to give me advice. But in lieu of that, my mom looked to me often for advice and counsel. And I would sort yeah. of try to give her counsel, even things I knew nothing about, but like, you know, she spent a lot of money and I knew that was gonna be an issue and we were kind of on a sinking <laughs> ship. And I would give her advice, like uh, things I had just read, like, you know, mom, saving money is making money. I didn't even really know what it meant, but it sounded kind of good. And it sounded yeah. like something, like I know she likes spending money, so she must like making money, so saving is making money. <laughs> But at a certain point, I realized like 13 or so that I needed to start like preparing my own kind of lifeboat. I started working because I wanted to earn money and have a bank account. 
I started modeling when I was 13 because it was the only job I could get and it paid pretty well if, if I could do it. And uh, yeah, I started taking like survival courses in the wilderness. And then I left high school early and rode on a truck across sub-Saharan Africa from Johannesburg to Bangui in the Central African Republic. And then I had to go back and graduate with my high school class, but. Hold on, before we move on from there. We're going too fast. We're we going, hold on, hold on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. hold on. And at the risk of offending you, Please, uh, there's some don't. psychoanalysis here that I want to sure. get into. Because So I didn't grow up around a dad, right? I mean, I saw him occasionally, but I was in deep search of kind of defining my masculinity. Hmm. I wonder if for you as well, coupled with knowing you're gay, I don't know what age you came out as gay, but like that being some weird, dumb stereotype, being an Upper East Side rich kids and stereotype, like, did you feel at all you were like Teddy Roosevelt going to the ranch? Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to go do some gnarly shit to dispel any of these thoughts that I'm a yes. lily white rich kid. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I knew I was gay since, I don't know, six or something, seven. I really knew I was gay once I saw Robbie Benson in this cheesy basketball movie called One on One, and he was so <laughs> yeah. cute. Ooh, I gotta check that I mean, out. I, well, that's hard. well, hold on, Anderson. I, I think that's not the one to decide if you're gay or not, because I think even a lot of straight guys were like, yeah, I would definitely make out with that, <laughs> that little basketball trot and curly-haired son of a bitch. Well, it's funny, because years later at college, I was on a crew team, and we would go down to Tampa to train in spring, and uh, we We'd, you know, had nothing to do, but we, so we'd go to Blockbuster and rent a movie. And one night I was like, oh yeah, we should rent this basketball movie. Uh, one on one, with Robbie Benson. And then we watch it and I had forgotten why it was that I'd liked it so much. And we start watching it and it wasn't a great movie, but they were all like, what the fuck is this? I was like, oh yeah, no, this isn't what I thought it was. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to test myself and so that I could sleep at night and learn that I could survive in most situations. I felt like the worst thing has already happened to me, my dad dying, I became what I called a catastrophist because a pessimist seems so negative. So a catastrophist yeah. sounds kind of sexy and exciting. So yeah. I wanted to know that I could prepare myself for the next catastrophe that would inevitably come. Well, and can we add your brother to your older brother had killed himself, which right. I mean, you're really surrounded by death and fatality. Yeah, my brother Carter died uh, by suicide when he was 23 and I was 21. He jumped off the balcony of our apartment building in front of my mom. Um, oh. But that oh for me, again, was God. like the capper on the journey I'd already been on. I, would, I can't believe I used the word journey. But yeah, that was, for me was kind of the final push of, all right, now I'm just gonna go to wars. Like when everything falls apart, I wanna know what that looks like and how you deal with that. Okay, so this is so juicy. I have a similar kink. And so I'm wondering, as a child being a partner and being kind of the chairman of the board, you don't have time to indulge emotions. Like that is right. a skill totally. you develop oh, yeah. very quickly, right? To compartmentalize, to ignore. Yeah. And I guess for me that even became something now I regret, but for some period of my life, I was like, that was a point of pride for me. Like I'm not shook, like shit gets crazier and crazier and I love it. Yes. But it's a result of trauma, right? Yes. I mean, no, that's, that's absolutely yeah. true. And also yeah. I wanted to test myself in like stoicism wasn't a thing then, but if it was, I would have been like its lead champion. I mean, I, like I, <laughs> I wanted to go out into the edges of the world and uh, there was this cheesy moment in Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner. And there's a scene in it where he's riding a horse in front of gunfire and he throws his hands wide and he just opens himself up to it and rides through it. And that, yeah. in my mind, was like, that is what I want. 
Yes. In the absence of the father, did your mom have boyfriends that were in and out? She did, sort of, which I was all for. And I wanted, like, I didn't want to be the only one <laughs> yeah, insulting yeah, yeah. my mom. You needed, I, needed, I needed, help. Yeah, yeah, I needed to fill out the board a little bit. And, um, <laughs> but the ones who I would push her toward were the ones who were responsible, had some money, yeah. had a profession, had an interest. And that would never work with my mom. So her excuses were always like, he likes to watch baseball. And I, I didn't know how to argue right. with that. I mean, I... <laughs> yeah. He owns a lazy boy. Right, he is a lazy boy. <laughs> no, she would have loved the lazy boy, actually. <laughs> she would have thought it was the most exotic thing. It's called a lazy sure, sure, boy. Sure. She called me up a couple of... <laughs> there was one time when she called me up like a year before she died, and she was like, have you ever heard of this Dr. Phil? He's extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> he tells it like he sees it. As a kid, and you're just a little bit older than me, but as a kid, Vanderbilt jeans were fucking enormous. Like that yes. was all the range. Was that not a super profitable empire for her? It was. I mean, it wasn't her empire. She didn't own the business. She had licensed her name okay. to it and she was doing okay. all the promotional work for it. And she was very involved in it and working really hard and traveling all around the country and stuff for it. She made a lot of money from it, but it wasn't ownership. It wasn't a long lasting thing. So at a certain point, and I don't know what the term was, the contract ended and that business continued. I think it's still out there today, but she, there's no royalties from right. it or anything. Her attorney at the time was a guy named Tom Andrews, who hooked up with my mom's psychiatrist at the time, whose name was Chris Zoyce, and they went in league against my mom, and they bought Ooh. all like her licensing stuff for like home furnishings. They were oh both disbarred. God. Tom Andrews oh. lost his law license. Chris Zoyce lost his medical license. Last thing I heard is he's like running old age homes in Florida somewhere, I guess through his son or something. But um, oh, that's on uh, brand. But yeah, so she was never able to, she wanted judgment against them, but she was never able to recoup any of the, the money. So yeah, my mom was taken advantage of. You had your hands so full, it's bonkers. Yeah, it was a lot. Here's my last question for you on just to tie up this whole scenario. I'm projecting here, but having had a relationship with my mother that was that as well, complicated, and, and I filled some facets, it made me a commitment-phobe because I had been committed at a young age. Uh, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So oh, let me just ask you the permutation <laughs> for you. Are you a commitment-phobe right away, or do you like delve deep with somebody, assess them, think you can solve them, be happy to solve all their problems at first, and then once you're in it, you get annoyed and you're stuck as the person of solver of problems and it just drives you friggin' bananas? Yeah, I'll go one step further. So yes, it's get deeply in love. The second I realize they love me, I start panicking that I'll be one day delivering this terrible news to them that I'm leaving because I don't want the responsibility. Wow. And then yes, I'm a fucking control freak because that's the only way I can trust somebody is to know that I can control everything about them. Mm. That's the only way I can feel safe. Oh, that's a thing. If I just leave it to them, I'm going to be the victim of all their whimsy. <laughs> <laughs> the control thing doesn't happen to me, but I totally realize I tend to attract people who see me as stable and as yeah. I can make things happen and, and I'm caring and all of which is true. It's so normal for me that that's what my initial go-to is, is to like solve somebody's all their problems and stuff. 
But then sure, gradually sure. over time, it starts to annoy me because I, yeah. I of course, secretly want somebody who can do that for me and <laughs> it never even occurs yeah. to them. Soon as their credit score hits 800 again, you're out. You're like, okay, right, work. Exactly. okay. I feel like, you know what, my work is done. <laughs> you're better for knowing me. Monica, please. This is a tricky question. I almost asked it earlier to another guest. I do think it's a theme, but it makes it sound blamey, which is not what I'm getting at. But do you think like at an early age when you start catastrophizing and you go in with this mentality that... I don't want to say you you manifest some of that stuff, but it starts appearing everywhere because it's at the top of mind. Mm. Like you're thinking about tragedy, you're avoiding it, and then it's everywhere. That's interesting. Well, you quite literally went in search of it and right. found yeah. it. So. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. interesting. My initial thing is I don't think I believe that. I do think you're right in that, you know, I talked to Malcolm Gladwell a couple of, I don't know, it was probably years ago him. now. And we were talking about optimism and catastrophism, and I was telling him how my mom was an optimist and was an eternal optimist, and all, all the terrible things that happened to her, she was able to still be vulnerable and open and uh, trusting. And he said, your mom was right. That's the way to live. Your mom was happier, and she would be right 95% of the time, that, that most people wouldn't screw you over. And mm -hmm. I believe that is true. I don't know that I manifest it, but I do think it does not allow me to enjoy things very much because my mom would say like, the phone can ring and your whole life can change. And I'd be like, yeah, the phone can ring and your whole life can change. Yeah. Um, so I expect it to ring in a negative way and like I'm braced yeah. for it, right. I'm always ready for it. And uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, yeah I think, it, I wish I was not this way. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you, uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. 
Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were, to... not to out you, you were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be <laughs> Rob specific. and I received some texts Yeah, morning. I was locked out of my therapy setting, <laughs> which is this attic. <laughs> <sighs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. I relate so much to you. I guess this is the way it could potentially manifest itself or the way it did in my life, right? Which was... So I grew up around, it's so boring for everyone that listens to the show, it's a trillion times I've said it, but I grew up around a ton of violence, ton, ton of violence, and I became someone who was trained myself to not be uh, put off by it and to get involved in it. And to the degree that I thought, I really had convinced myself that people in my orbit really valued me because I would protect them. If something went down, I'm the guy that's going to run in and get busy. And I lived this way for years, and my wife finally said, you know, I don't feel safer around you. I feel much scareder around you because you're going to go to the next level at any moment. Mm. Like, I, I just know that. Like, things could escalate to a crazy place. And when I heard that, it was like identity shattering. I'm like, God, you feel more afraid around me? And I swear to God, once I kind of decoupled from that, Anderson, I promise you, I'd see once a month some big meathead yelling at a woman at her car. And I'd get out and tell the guy to get in his car. I would see someone at the grocery store being like, wow. I just would see it nonstop. And once I no longer had it as my identity that no one wanted me to do that, I mean, the world couldn't have changed, but I literally don't see that anymore. I've not seen that kind of thing in yeah. years. And I'm like, that's I don't think I've ever seen hell. that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, that, that's <laughs> There you go. The reason I even, it occurred to me is I was sponsoring a dude in AA who had the exact same hangup. And he kept telling me, he's all, oh, mate, I saw this fucking guy taking pictures of kids on the beach. And I'm like, I bet you did. I bet you did. I don't see that right. <laughs> anymore. Oh, that's okay, interesting. Okay, back to you. Monica, you've given me something to think about now. I'm going to reassess <laughs> oh my God. here. You're changing the course of yeah. broadcast history. history. You're saving wow. lives while drinking your Perrier. <laughs> Okay, good. So we answered the early childhood stuff, which I was really fascinated with, and then uh, going to all the scary places. And then just how you built your career is really, really impressive. I mean, it just really is. You're just a hardworking motherfucker. You're meticulous. I don't know how you've done this for 30 years. And when I get to your Wikipedia page, there's no scandal part. Everyone's got a scandal part. Everyone's got a controversy part. You got none. 
Impossible. Well, <laughs> you're good, probably, you have good NDAs no, no. or something. I mean, I've made some mistakes, certainly, <laughs> and I'm sure there's some scandal to come. And I actually, I was on vacation a couple of years ago, and I'm not very good on vacation, as one can imagine, and I, I need things to obsess about. So I started obsessing on this vacation in Rome about that something I had done in high school. I, that there, there's something I've done in high school, and it's going to come out, and I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but this is happening, and... I was mulling this for a good three days, couldn't sleep at night, and I finally sat down and I wrote out a statement about it. I didn't oh know, there's, there was no it there. I just wrote out a statement so that I knew when it happened, I didn't have to spend an extra two hours crafting a statement. I have oh my a statement. God. This is how you're spending your vacation. This is where you, Monica, and I really converge nicely. Because rumination. rumination. Oh my God, yeah. rumination Planning is the worst. For some... <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It's like deadly. I don't know if you've had your brains checked out lately, but if you ruminate a lot, you need to have them checked out. Oh, yeah, really? Rumination is n is seriously not good. Oh, uh, we yeah. know, we know. It doesn't mean we still don't spend a good portion Try of not our day. To, but yeah. it's hard. Yeah. Anderson, I must get in 13 fights slash debates a day up here where I'm preparing every answer uh -huh. to every incoming assault. Right. And, and these things never it Never happen. You would think I'd learn. Well, they that's the thing. Never happen. That's happened. been a blessing for me of realizing <laughs> I have been able to like step back a little bit and recognize that 98% of the things I am obsessively <laughs> ruminating and preparing for and writing statements for never actually happen. <laughs> and so at a certain point, just rationally, you can say to yourself, okay, this may happen, but chances are it's not going to happen. And by thinking about it all the time, I'm just having all the drama and the fear of it happening, but it doesn't, hasn't happened. Oh, exactly. Well, and this ties into what we were just talking about. I mean, I think sometimes when you're in your head and you're coming up with all these counter arguments and all of these things, you are waiting for it mm. to come. So like if me and you are having an argument, which happens quite often. Yeah, every couple hours. Yep. The argument will fly out of your mouth or my mouth because we've already prepped it. <laughs> and it's so like, right. wait, 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 wait. And sometimes you'll be doing this whole thing and I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Where'd that come from? And yeah. I do the same thing, but when yeah. you're living in your head like that. When we argue, yeah. it's like Wait. one of us is reading the uh, court transcript from the stenographer. Uh, right. Like the yeah. whole the whole court case already yeah. happened. And you know, and then I know you're gonna well, say I don't know. this. See, I don't I, know my problem is I don't talk to the people around me. So because I'm talking to myself and I'm working out it in my head, and I think doing a pretty damn fine job of it, I don't need to involve other people until it's already reached sure. its conclusion. Yeah. So when I present my conclusion to somebody, which sounds like a passing thought, and they start to weigh in, then it's just yep. annoying. Because I've already yes. I've been through every permutation of what they're going to say, and I've discussed it, and I've, and I've doubled back on it, and I proved it wrong. And to have to explain it to them is just infuriating. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, they had their day in court in <laughs> yes, your head. Exactly. Their time to talk was a half hour ago I have ago heard your, your statement. I have heard what you said before you even knew you were going to say it. <laughs> okay, so why the decision to tell the story of your family? Well, first of all, my dad died when I was 10. He grew up very poor in Mississippi on a farm, and he wrote toward the end of his life, he wrote a book called Families, a Memoir and a Celebration about his family growing up and his long aunts and uncles and grandparents, and also his hopes for the little family he created with my mom. So my brother and I are in the book a lot. He really wrote it as a letter to my brother and I, knowing that he probably would not survive to see us grow up. And that, for me, was a life 
raft. It was, a, I mean, that was a savior, that book. It's a book I reread twice a year. And to this day, all my memories are really from that book, I think. I'm not sure I even actually remember the events themselves. Right before my dad died in hospital, he asked us to get some tape recorders so he could record his voice talking to us. And we didn't do it. Like we weren't allowed to go, we weren't allowed to go oh. to the intensive care ward. So we couldn't, anyway, I had so rejected the Vanderbilt side of my mom's history that I just didn't want to know anything about it. I felt it wasn't part of my survival oriented plan. There was no trust fund. There was no dynasty. There was no summer cottage that people would go to and we'd all gather around and roast. I don't know what Vanderbilt's would roast around a fire if they did, but some wild game, some what was right, some wild boar. And so <laughs> I thought no good can come of this. That was not who I was. I was like, okay, I'm a Cooper. I'll go with my dad's family. And that's the model I'll use to project myself forward because that's the way I think you can have a happier life. But when I had my kid, I realized, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say to him about this whole weird side of my family. And I honestly don't know what I would say because I don't know anything about them. And then I found this book that my dad had actually started writing about the Vanderbilts right before he died. And I thought, well, that's really no weird. And like he literally had a, a note, yeah. you know, a binder it said Vanderbilt on it. And... So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I just started doing the research, the writing of it. And I'm really glad I did because knowing about these people, A, it confirms the choices I made early on, which were based on instinct largely. But it also does, in a weird way, make me feel kind of grounded more in this city and in this country. And just, you know, there's a lot of people in America who cannot trace their lineage back, who were ancestors were brought here against their will. And there are not records beyond when they left a, a gate in West Africa or wherever they came from. And I was able to, and it does make a difference in my life, I felt. Like, even if I don't relate to these people in a intellectual or moral way, it's interesting. It makes me feel like there's been steps of me before me. Well, let me try to paint like a two minute teaser for why the genesis of the story is, is such a fascinating one. First and foremost, I think Cornelius, he's first generation, right? His parents are Dutch. Yes. They're immigrants. Uh, well, actually not both. He's actually more English and he's Dutch, but the part of him that's Dutch is, is the name. The first Vanderbilt to come is the guy Jan Artsen in like the mid 1600s. He was an indentured servant, a poor farmer who sold his uh, labor to get a ticket on the boat. Uh, and then worked out in uh, Flatbush in Brooklyn, and then his ancestors ended up settling on it. So there are about three generations of Vanderbilt's poor farmers before this child was born. But he's a young kid, and he's growing up on the yep. waterways around Manhattan, and he starts sailing this boat around, he gets good at it, and he starts transporting people, and then he ultimately gets into the steam ship business, which is pretty new, and it is as tough of a business as you could get into, because at the time, no one owned routes. You'd fight over a dock. There were these famous collisions between ferryboat captains where they'd fucking smash into each other, and 100 people would go up in flames. The boilers yeah. blew up. It was so tough and hard scrabble, and he built this empire by doing that. And just as a character, what's fascinating about him is this story might be apocryphal. Maybe you can tell me, but th there was a point where he fought in the St. Patrick's Day parade or something. There was a, a middleweight champion boxer who had called him out, and then he, he got off a, a horse and fought this guy in the parade, <laughs> like as the richest man in New York. 
And my favorite part of him is he hated fucking shorters. There was so much corruption in the stock market at that point. There were all these inside traders that knew what stop was going to be put on the rail line and they'd short these stocks. And as his hobby, he started fucking busting the shorters. He was like policing the stock market because he had enough money and he could fuck them over. Just a crazy individual. And his, yeah, hard scrabble as a human could be. Yeah, I mean, the thing that interests me about him was sort of the human side to him and the pathology of the money. And there have been a ton of really good books written about the Commodore's business acumen and all the stuff, his Supreme Court cases, the battles, his destruction of people. He once said to these guys he was going against in business, he said, I'm not going to sue you because the courts are too slow, but I am going to destroy you. And he said about destroying them. Well, and can we add, he would sometimes go to a competitor and say, here's the story. I'm either opening up a line directly next to you or you're going to pay me from now on eight grand a month. Right. They would pay him not to compete. Yeah. To me, what was fascinating is like this kid is born to this family of not a very successful Dutch farmer who doesn't have much ambition, this English mother who saves up money and is this strong-willed person, and at 11 drops out of school, the school is lame, and he starts working on his dad's little pirogger, it's called, or periogger, it's a shallow bottom boat to ferry a few crates of vegetables here or there from Staten Island to New York. And literally pulling this boat through the water at times in the shallow water, it's a really physical stuff. He's growing up in the docks of New York. By 16, he gets his own boat. His mom gives him a loan of $100, which is about $1,600 today. And he buys his own little boat. And within a year, he drives his own father out of the ferry business. So in collusion with his mom, he fucks over his dad, gets him out of the ferry business. And there begins this, uh, what, what he later in life called his mania for money. And he didn't care yeah. about the girls in his family. He had mostly girls because they would not inherit the name. Therefore, they weren't really Vanderbilts. Oh, wow. So his focus was on the boys, none of whom could ever live up to his expectations. One had epilepsy, actually was gay as well. Yeah. So that person was weak. He sent him to a lunatic asylums. They called them them twice. Another son died during the Civil War. He actually died in the French Riviera, but he had been in the Civil War, but then he just he like got sick. So they <laughs> sent him to the French Riviera and he died there. The son who was epileptic ended up shooting himself in the head in a hotel room. The only son who was deemed worthy by the Commodore was his son, Billy. And it wasn't until he was like in his 50s that the Commodore saw a little sparkle in him when the son screwed the Commodore over in a minor business deal. And the Commodore was like, ah, he got the best of me. This guy has something. He's going to get the entire fortune. And that's what he did. It's like succession. It's it's like succession and the crown (laughs) together. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And he was the first person to amass $100 million. Right. He, when he right? died, he had $100 million, which was more money than was in the U.S. Treasury. And it was one out of every $20 in circulation in the United States at the time. Oh. That's, I'm so glad you just said, because that's also relevant when you look at Rockefeller's worth. He got to a billion dollars in the right. 20s. And yeah, it actually is a significant percentage right. of the total amount of money in America. $100 million is a lot of money, but you think, I don't know, somebody makes that for their Netflix special these days. $100 million back then was right. yeah. uh, not only did it have a lot of buying power, but it just nobody had that level of money amassed. And, and then his son, Billy, who inherited all the money, goes on, only lives eight more years, and he more than doubles it. He doubles it to $230 million. Wow. 
Oh, so the first son was... Yeah, he was the only one who increased the fortune. And then every subsequent generation, it was just, you know, siphoning it off. Some of them worked, you know, the, my great-grandfather, Billy's son, worked. He was on the boards and stuff, but he wasn't innovating. They weren't pushing the railroads farther the west than Chicago. Who built the Biltmore Estate? Because as a kid, I went there in Asheville, North Carolina, and it, at the time was the biggest house in America. It may still be. It's like 150 bedrooms or something. George Vanderbilt, who was one of Billy's sons. Yeah, it's an extraordinary house. It's really the only house that's still in private family hands. I mean, it's a relative of the Vanderbilts. Uh, I forgot what their last name is. And they've done a really smart job in monetizing it, having it open to the public, and yet still having it in private hands. All the other ones, a lot of them tried to do that in the 1940s and 50s to sort of keep their houses going, to kind of open them up to the public. But they ended up mostly either, most of them were all torn down or sold for little money to historical societies. Well, did they fall into this well-worn pattern over in England, which is there's all these people that are lords and whatever, and they inherit this property and then it bankrupts them. Like just owning the property ends up bankrupting them. Yes, in England, that's a big thing. So much so that in the turn of the century, late 1800s, a lot of English lords would come to America to find a rich American heiress who would be able to pump their new blood money into the old castle. So this happened to uh, <laughs> yeah. my great uncle, my great grandfather, his brother, Willie K. Vanderbilt, both of whom were the sons of the guy who doubled the fortune. Willie K. was like a party boy. He married this Southern woman named Alva who broke the Vanderbilts into New York society. She had a daughter named Consuelo and Consuelo was forcibly married off to the Duke of Marlborough, who owned Blenheim Palace, which is like a, I don't know, 200 or 300 room palace in, uh, in England and uh, like first cousin to Winston Churchill. So my great uncle's daughter became the Duchess of Marlborough, miserably so. And Vanderbilt money replenished Blenheim Palace and enabled that to continue going. Oh my God, that is so fascinating. I would love to hear your armchair psychology of these people. I guess initially, like when I hear that the, the grandson, Bill's son, built the Biltmore house, my guess is like he's not going to accomplish anything of significance in the working world. So he's going to erect this monument. That'll be yeah. his accomplishment. So at the time, whether they actually believed it or not, which I think they probably did, but there wasn't an American architecture per se at the time, just as... There wasn't a, a mm -hmm. cult of celebrity in America at the time because newspapers back then couldn't print photographs. So nobody knew what anybody really looked like. So there weren't famous people who were visibly identifiable. So if you saw Cornelius Vanderbilt wow. walking down the street, a lot of people wouldn't know what he looked like. Wow. He punched you in the mouth. <laughs> I mean, Cornelia, the Commodore, they wouldn't know this, probably. He's a big guy. But they viewed the building of, of New York society, like high society, as kind of a nationalist project, as like giving America a, a clearly identifiable social class. And what they did is they looked to Europe and they borrowed things, mostly French things. Like a lot of these houses are filled with fireplaces from palaces in France ripped out. They would literally rip apart palaces huh. and bring them over. Like it was French food that was being served. People would learn French. There were these dances called quadrilles that would be performed at these parties. It was based on a French dance. And so for George Vanderbilt and the others, I mean, part of it was, it was conspicuous consumption. It was, we have this money. It's a statement of power. 
is a statement of eternal power. We believe this is going to last forever because we just have so much money we can't imagine it's not going to last. And we are yeah. just going to show ourselves to be the heads of society. And so the building of the palaces was in many ways, I'm not so sure on Biltmore because of where it was built, but certainly all the palaces that were built in Newport, Rhode Island and in New York, and there were a dozen or so Vanderbilt palaces in New York City. Bergdorf Goodman and Department Store was my great-grandfather's house. The entire block of 57th Street, 58th Street. Oh, my god! And there were probably six or seven other palaces, Vanderbilt palaces, along Fifth Avenue in that area. They were viewed as a nationalist project, almost like this is America's face to the world and America can be on par with Europe and these are our grand mansions. And so that was sort of the official kind of thinking, the reasoning. In truth, it was competition. The Vanderbilts were the nouveau riche Arrivas when they came on the scene. The Commodore was like this uncouth guy who had died of venereal excesses, as they called it, cursed and spat tobacco <laughs> and didn't give a shit about going to fancy dinner parties. He didn't build palaces. He lived in a comfortable house near Washington Square Park, but not on the park. And he just wanted to make money. And it's in New York society at that time, you had to be two generations removed from the awful making of the money in order to be accepted in society. So the people who made the money, their hands were too dirty. So like Caroline Astor, yeah. who at that time ran New York society, her grandfather, he made all the money for the Astors initially by slaughtering, catching and killing beavers and selling beaver pelts. So his hands uh, were drenched in beaver blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Carolyn Astor had to be two generations removed from the, the blood of the beavers on their hands. And if you go to Astor Place, the subway stop in New York, it's why there's beavers on the ceramic tiles around the name Astor Place. Oh. It was all based on beaver blood. So the Commodore was too uncouth to be part of society, <laughs> as were his children, because they were just one generation. But the grandchildren could be. So it was my great-grandfather and his brother, Willie Kay. And they were the ones who had the first entree to society and they had smart wives who grabbed, like saw the opportunity. They had no money of their own. They married into this family. They're from the South. And they went about this project of getting the Vanderbilts to be New York society with a vengeance. And they succeeded very quickly. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Why was he obsessed with money if he didn't want to spend it? Money was power. Money was freedom. Like he wasn't going to be like a gunslinger, but with money, he could do anything. I think it's relevant to paint a picture of what late 1800s in New York City was as well. I think the context of that time, it's like my story about the ferry boat captains smashing into each other. There was no right. regulation of anything. It was still a place where it was kill or be killed. That was the mentality. If you rip people off and you were a con artist, you weren't scum. You were out savvying people. Like It was a d way different place Manhattan back then, where it's just like strength was everything. There just were not rules in place. There weren't taxes. You could build all these houses because there were no inheritance taxes. There were no income tax. There weren't income taxes. There weren't death taxes. So they just imagined this was going to go on and on and on. And then once the tax codes changed, suddenly you have a hundred room palace on Fifth Avenue and you need 40 servants who all suddenly have to be paid actually like perhaps so some sort of a wage and it's unsustainable. 
it's just not possible. I have to imagine they told themselves as well that this entrance into high society was an investment. I could see where they thought like, oh, well, this is going to somehow protect our fortune. If we are people of status and power, that's going to perpetuate this thing further. But I also think they just believed that they deserve this. And uh. yes, it all came from grandpapa, the Commodore, who most of them probably did not like very much. I mean, he was not a very likable guy, but I think they imagined that it would just go on eternally like that. This was their birthright. They were Vanderbilt's. My grandfather, who I knew nothing about, my mom didn't know anything about him. My mom's dad, he died when my mom was 15 months old. He inherited probably, I think, seven to $10 million. He drank his life away. He died at 45 violently of cirrhosis of the liver. His esophagus exploded and blood splattered on the walls of his bedroom as he died. Oh, and wow. he lied. He died in debt because he had gambled away. He would gamble $100,000 at night at restaurant in, at Delmonico's in New York. He killed two people with his automobile and nobody seemed to care. He hit a seven-year-old child with his car and the press blamed the child for getting in front of the car. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It, it was a time when to be a Vanderbilt, yeah. nothing could really touch you, it seemed. I find it stunning the waste of my grandfather's life and the chances he had to have actually done something with his life. It's, it's, I find it really sad and pathetic, but I think they just felt this would go on and on. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day, and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy, and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all-new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow-roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, Getting ready for a marathon or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com running to learn more. We are supported by Intuit the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you yeah, on. Yeah, they don't teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy-to-use resources, like getting a car loan with credit Karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com slash education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education.
And you just touched on one of my questions, which was going to be what presence of addiction is in this lineage? Because I just would imagine that you on paper have the perfect life. But of course, inside of the perfect life, it's not, no one's life's fucking perfect. And so the only real escape from that is substances. I have to imagine it was rampant. People always looked at the Vanderbilt men as sort of the ones running the family. The truth is the dynasty as it was would have been much better served if the women were in charge of it because they were forces of nature. Most of the women who came into the family or married into the family were from from the South. Uh, The Commodore late in life got rid of his first wife he sent her to a lunatic asylum, just like he sent his son to a lunatic asylum twice. It was a fix-all he for him. He had an M.O., yeah. <laughs> right. Well, she was going through the change, and she was being unreasonable when he wanted to have sex with the governess. So <laughs> she went to the lunatic asylum. Right. Oh, wow. Right. Well, that is to, on her. To, to know Cornelius <laughs> right. was yes, to be exactly. put in an asylum. You know, <laughs> people put a lot of people in boxes. He put them actually in boxes. The Commodore, he was too busy making money. He didn't care about drinking that sort of thing. I mean, I'm sure he drank, he smoked cigars and stuff. He had his primary addiction was that. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting to me, and, and that's really what the book is about, it's, it's about what proximity to this money does in the lives of multiple generations in this family. Because it's not just having the money that affects the life. It's having proximity to the money and yet not having access to the money. Like if you're a daughter of Commodore Vanderbilt, you're given $10,000 when you're married, but that's it. And yet, you know, there's a hundred million dollars going to be assigned to somebody and you want it to be you. And so there's all the machinations that go along with it. And it's the absence of money in the life of the Commodore's epileptic gay son, who the Commodore thinks is weak, so therefore not entitled to really any money at all. And the Commodore gave him a few hundred thousand dollars over the years, but he just saw that as as an insult. And there was long litigation, the, the siblings fighting each other. So it's to me, it's really interesting about how the mania of the Commodore, that pathological desire for money, how it infected the subsequent generations and how it infects generations, even for those who won't get that money, which is why, again, I mean, my parents sat me down when I was eight or nine and I didn't know anything about like trust funds or what those were, but they explained to me, look, people are going to look at you, especially now that your mom's jeans business thing is really taking off. People are going to look at you weirdly. They're going to think you're like, have this huge trust fund somewhere, that there's some pot of gold waiting for you. That is not the case. No matter what you hear or read about it, that is not the case. We're doing fine. Your college will be paid for, but there's not more than what you see on the walls of this apartment. And it was a revelation to me in a very freeing way of, oh, I don't have any connection to this stuff and I can make my own course. And that was the greatest thing they ever told me. Okay, so now here's where you and I can have a, we can have a good debate here. Mm. I'm way more obsessed with money than I would like to be. I really, really have valued it my whole life to an unhealthy degree. And I've read what you said about what you're willing to leave to your son. And of course, I'm in a similar situation. And Kristen and I fight about what they'll get and this and that. How old are your kids? Six and eight. From my own point of view, just see if you you find any merit in this. I coveted it so much that Mm -hmm. it became a fairy tale to me, money. And I had a whole idea of what having X amount of money would feel like and what the experience would be like. And it wasn't those things. And in fact, it was all the processes that led Mm -hmm. to me getting that money that really is what I liked. And it's been a very long road for me. So all I want is my kids to get passionate about something. Now, if they get passionate about teaching, 
fuck yeah, go be a teacher without the fear of like, oh, I can't make ends meet. Like, I like the idea of like, you do whatever sets you on fire and know you can, mm -hmm. you can still live in this house. I'm going to give you this house. Like, don't ever be motivated out of this. But I see the fear that you have, and I, I have a great deal of it as well, but I, I, it's just interesting. My thought is kind of like, maybe I could actually unburden them from that pursuit. And if money results from their passion, awesome. If it doesn't, mm -hmm. whatever, they're making ends meet. What are your thoughts? I've gone round and round in my head on this for my entire life. So I totally understand. I've heard your argument before. I've discounted it. Let me explain to you why you're wrong. <laughs> in a way that you can understand. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I don't think you're wrong. Look, I, I certainly understand what you're saying. And I preserve the right to change my mind down the road. This is not some ironclad thing. I mean, I said that I believed what my parents did for me, which was freeing me from this idea that other people were putting on, on me or would have put on me that there was a trust fund for me. They made it clear there is not, and your college will be paid for. But after that, you need to find your way. And that's what I think most people go through, except I also would not be burdened with student loans, which was a huge thing, obviously. That was a huge, huge relief to know that. Although I was eight, so I didn't even know what student loans were. But as I came to know, I realized that's a, a huge gift. But I like that model. And if I can interject one second, not only did he say it and everyone knows it, the reason I know it, I've been asked in interviews that I've given recently, like Anderson Cooper said he's oh. not gonna, like literally he's become one of those oh things God. where I fucked uh. everyone over by saying how often I bathe my kids and then everyone <laughs> got asked that. So this is very similar. I've had to answer this fucking question because of you. When Google came around, I would Google my mom's name sometimes just to see what was going on with that. And it would pop up that she has $200 million and that I'm the scion of a $200 million empire. And every time I would see that, I would be like, wow, that's, that's really funny. And right before my mom died, at some point, we had the best like two weeks before she died. An incredible, incredible time together. At one point she said, uh, she was like, you know, I bet people think you're going to inherit a lot of money. I was like, yeah, actually, mom, I, I read it was $200 million. And she was like, wow, they're going to be surprised. And sure enough, when she died, the New York Post had a thing of like, I'm now going to inherit $200 million. So anyway, um, even though in 1996, uh, they published this front page that my mom was dead broke. And I was like, I wanted to refer them to their Desolate, own reporting yeah, yeah. from 1996. <laughs> First of all, I don't think focusing on money is a great idea for anyone growing up. If you can avoid it, it infects the way you see yourself. And I grew up, yeah. I was desperately afraid of how am I going to support my mom when she goes completely bonkers and spends all the money? How am I, like I had a nanny growing up who I loved. She was my mom for all intents and purposes. She's old. She's going to get fired at some point. How am I going to pay for her for the rest of her life and take care of her and get her a house and all this stuff? And that would keep me awake as a kid. I mean, every single night I was literally writing notes on like how much money I would need to get them. I didn't know anything, but I was imagining this stuff. Wow. So I don't think that's a healthy thing either for a kid to have. But I do think that drive that I think I was born with, but I also think was cultivated and amplified by that feeling of fear and sadness and whatever else it was and rage, I think was a huge propellant that pro has propelled me through a lot of things that might have crushed me. And I look at my brother who was two years older than me and smarter than me, better looking, far more intelligent, and far more sensitive, 
who died by suicide at 23 in front of my mom. And the only thing I see different between us is he didn't prepare himself in this course of study that I did on how to survive in any situation. And I think he believed a little bit in that mystique of the Vanderbilt thing. I'm not saying that was, I mean, obviously there were emotional issues and mental health issues yeah. and stuff, but I think he had a sense of, you know, his middle name was Vanderbilt. And I think that was a mistake. I would never give a child that name, even if it's hidden in the middle. Also, when anyone says your name and they say Anderson v. Cooper, <laughs> it sounds true. like you're yes. suing yourself. Which is inevitable. <laughs> but I, yes, I also don't want my son or any child I have to grow up to be obsessed with money. And I mean, I think ultimately, I think if money is the focus, I think it's a losing game because you'll never have enough of it. And look, this is a highbrow conversation to even have because for most people, money isn't a benchmark of anything. It's money you need to live on and have a decent life and get things for your kids and stuff. But if, if you're able to make enough and if your goal is making money, I just think it's never going to be enough. And I don't think that's a healthy thing. Well, I agree with you in my own journey with it is what it represents to me is safety. Totally. And yeah. safety is an illusion for starters. Yeah, I could be a billionaire right. and fucking get throat cancer tomorrow. What you know, what did it really safeguard me against? So it's the this illusion of safety and realizing it is a fear. So I have enormous fear of financial insecurity and fears aren't rational and they can't be combated with more and more money. They actually don't bear any witness to reality. So I need to confront that fear in a way other than just accumulating money. But right, again, I, yeah. I had to first get the fucking money to realize that. It's interesting to have this conversation because it's not a conversation I would normally have with people because it's not... It's not endearing at all. No, it's not sympathetic. <laughs> yeah. Right. Everybody has reactions to it, and it's, not, and it's totally understandable. I would as well. I just think, I hope my kids have passion for something and interest in something. And as, like you, it doesn't matter to me what it is. Yeah. And I want them to feel like they have to work in order to make it happen. And I happily will be there. I hope to be a present parent for as long as I'm alive and as long as they want me in their lives. But I just think growing up for the first 20 years of your life with this idea that, oh, well, you know what? There's this pot of gold waiting for me. I think you need to be grounded a little bit in, okay, find an idea that's going to work and make it happen. I agree with you. But, but the only thing I'll say is that I think when we identify money being the problem, we're getting close. But the money actually represents, in my opinion, something else. So there is a way in which your children can be entitled and you can do everything for your kids and you can solve everything for your kids. And guess what? Those kids are going to have no fucking ambition, no drive. They can't get through any challenge. And that doesn't even require money. And I do think with people with money, they often solve everything with their money for their kids. And then it, it does create this outcome that then gets correlated to the money, but I don't know that it's causality. I think it separates you from people. And I think it separates you from having to deal with, oh, okay, you know, it was a revelation to me when I learned that Disney World has for, I guess for people who pay more, there's like a way to get faster on the rise. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. I mean, I loved Disney World yeah. when I was a kid. And part of me, for me, the experience was standing on those lines waiting to get on the ride and being unhappy about it and impatient about it. And yeah, I would have liked to at the time have skipped the line or like being part of, like my parents never were part of any clubs. So like we had a house out on Long Island and there was a very fancy beach club. 
And it was in a, a beach club that clearly had very restrictive policies. And my parents didn't believe in being part of any club that would restrict people in any way. Yeah. I only had one friend who lived across the street from me in this place. And I spent every summer there with my one friend. Uh, so it would have been nice to have friends from that beach club probably. <laughs> But I'm glad they didn't make that choice. Okay, so here's the, yes, you just hit the essence of it. So I was deciding to take my daughter to Disneyland for the first time. She was five. And we can go with a guide because, A, my wife's a fucking Disney princess, so they'll extend that to us. We could do that, right? I'd forgotten that, actually. Yeah. So I'm evaluating what lesson do I want to teach her. So I want to teach her you fucking wait in line. That's part of the experience. And then I also have to weigh... Also, people want to take pictures with their dad. Is that fair to have right. her whole day at Disneyland spent me taking pictures with people? So these are really, I think, at least, that's a hard decision for me to make. Yeah. I ultimately was like, no, we're standing these fucking lines. And by the way, you can't even ride more than three rides there. It's so fucking busy. And, and I did it. So I think that's, now I'm patting myself on the back, but like that's the decision over you're getting money or you're not getting money. Is like along the way, she doesn't witness me buy our way out of discomfort with money. Right. Yeah. But then it's like the airplane thing, right? Like when you're flying with your kids and you have the ability to fly as nice as you can, do you not do that because you want to teach your kids? I, I would not pay ever for a private plane just because I feel like, uh, yeah. you know, people born in depression have a depression era mentality. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe everything will be taken away from sure. me. So the idea of spending, I mean, do you know how much these private planes cost? Yes, yes. I looked into it one time. Yeah. It's <laughs> unbelievable. But these are all like little markers I have in my head, like tripwires. Like if I start to do that, it's all going to start to fall. Yeah. And I have to like keep up the standards. But private, um, private is, is another level. But let's just, just first class. Like anyone who's flown first class knows it's extremely preferable. Like we flew home from London recently, first class. And yeah. because a production was paying for it, but still. And- I'm like, these kids are six and eight and flying in a bed. British Airways in a bed. I mean, yeah. so nice. And I'm like, look, I'm not sitting with them in coach if we have the ability to right. fly like this. So I understand right. the conundrum. And by the way, I think most people would feel like that. Like maybe if they're just looking from it from a bird's eye view, they'd be like, well, no, like the right thing to do is to, is to teach them and to fly coach. And the, but then you have to do that. And you work <laughs> and really work hard. And I ass off to, yes, to, to not able. fight for my seat. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so the, the only equivalent story is when I was a kid, we didn't travel much when my dad was alive, but when the jeans hit, suddenly my mom was like, we're spending. And- um, <laughs> It's on. So we flew to Europe one summer and we flew in the Concorde. Oh my gosh. And I was horrified because I was like, oh my God, this is a huge expenditure of money. It was very uncomfortable <laughs> for me. Family accountant. Everything my mom ordered on the plane, I thought we had to individually pay for. And every, every little thing, I'd be like, oh, really? Okay. I, and I started, a pro, I started a thing then, which I continued really for a good four or five year period when I was a kid, of taking the cutlery oh, sure. from the aircraft. Sure. Sure. And keeping it. <laughs> yeah. Just so that when I had an apartment of my own, I would already have as much cutlery as I needed. <laughs> Miniature and I cutlery. Kid, I kid you not, it about when I got my first apartment, I found the box of cutlery oh that I had been saving. And I opened it up 
And of course, I hadn't realized that what looks like normal cutlery when you're a kid is actually little tiny airplane yeah, cutlery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it's like the booze little, bottles. It's like the right. booze bottles. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, oh, shit, I, I can't use this. I've been thinking all my life, this is one thing I'm not going to have to pay for. Yeah, you're going to have to yeah. either start hosting like children's dinner parties or get some new cutlery. So I guess I, this all leads me to a question then, Anderson, because... I bet I feel like many people, like, I want to rescue you from you. Do you feel that way, Monica? Like, to see the little boy <laughs> panicked on the Concorde and not able to enjoy flying supersonically, yes. I want to grab that little kid and go, hey, it's, it's gonna be you're okay. off the clock now, man. Let's just be uh -huh. a boy and let's have some fun and check out but the But he may not become who he well, is. Well, he won it. He won yeah. it. But it does lead me, do you have a sweet spot? Is there an activity you do or a hobby you do? where you're not fucking taking in all the info that could ultimately capsize <laughs> this experience. Do you have a safe space? My son has become that in a way I never even imagined. And it's very rare that I can be in a room for several hours just in the room present. And I've done meditation retreats and I'm a big believer in mindfulness meditation and stuff. But just being with this little creature running around is the greatest thing ever. And also, I mean, he looks like me. He looks like so much like my brother and like my mom. It connects me to my little nuclear family I had growing up, none of whom are here anymore. And it makes me think about my dad and me as my dad and the parent. It's, it's just fascinating on so many different levels and so healing and just... Yeah, it makes everything else seem just so ridiculous and like, why am I wasting time obsessing about these things or doing these things? We can call it obsessive thinking, but it is also narcissism to some degree, for me at least. I'm evaluating every nanosecond of the day what could make me feel more comfortable or less afraid or more secure or this or that or, or right. more my ego, whatever it is. To finally fucking have two things that I think about more than myself, or at least yeah. when I'm around yeah. them, I can think about them. The freedom of stepping out of this fucking hamster wheel has been life-changing for me. And it's just the most glorious thing. And I'll, I'll add one more thing to it. Mm -hmm. You're a guy that has had to, whether you wanted to or not, think about your identity as Anderson Cooper, the journalist, because you get ratings, you have contract extensions. You couldn't be the business you are and not be aware of that. Mm. And for me to finally have a thing, an identity, a cornerstone that was unrelated to all that, which is like, right. I'm their dad, number fucking one of all things. Yeah, that yeah. to me was just the biggest gift of all. I completely feel that. And I've thought about and worked on all of this stuff for, you know, obviously years and years and years. And the fact that I've been able to last this long has been a testament to like getting really good advice from a variety of smart therapists over the years who have saved my life and enabled me to help me have a life. But yeah, it has become the greatest thing ever. And it, yeah. it's become all I really care about. And I, like all my thoughts are no longer about, oh, 15 years, what am I gonna look like? And you yeah. know, if I'm not, if I don't find somebody soon, I'm not gonna, now I'm not gonna see anybody. And you know, like it doesn't, yeah. none of that really matters as much anymore. And everything about this little creature is just incredible. You know, I have this fantasy of sort of taking my son out on, if I'm still going out on stories and going around the world, bringing him along with me on some things and just kind of exposing him to, for me, leaving high school early and riding across sub-Saharan Africa in a truck for six months, it just 
reframes your entire way of thinking about things. And, and I think I want to try to expose him to as many of those kind of experiences early on. Um, yeah. And for me, also, grew up where a lot of famous people were in my house as a kid, and both my parents had me at the table sitting next to Charlie Chaplin when he first came back to America to receive his special Oscar. I was, I, oh I greeted God. him at the door and was expected to make conversation with him. And experiences like that, you get a sense of the value that your parents have in you that they think you're as interesting as everyone else and that you, and that other people will find you interesting. But you also, to me, one of the greatest privileges early on is to see how messed up everyone else is and to see sure. that just because somebody's an adult, it doesn't mean that they have their, their shit together and that, in fact, the more money they have, that's not really the solution either because all these people who I met who I knew had a lot of money were just as messed up as anybody, if not more so. And so... Yeah, I hope to at least expose him to opportunities. And that's really, with the book, the way I went about writing it is, this is not some kind of, oh, those saucy Vanderbilts and that, oh, what a glorious time it was. It's much more the stripping away the the facade and of the palaces and the fancy dresses and the balls and kind of seeing the lives of isolation and sadness that many of them were trapped in. By the way, I think it's... Uh a relevant endeavor because you really start looking at, as you said, like we coveted having this aristocratic class. We coveted having nobility, even though we didn't have it in America. It's funny that stuff was correlating with us hosting world fairs saying like, look at us, we too are this thing. And every little cog in it is part of the story that perpetuates it. So if people don't buy into the fantasy that becoming Cornelius Vanderbilt isn't the be all end all, then does the whole system collapse? I think that's the mm. fear. Like, so there's so many actors that are incentivized to totally. keep up this total bullshit fairy tale. I yeah. asked, we got to interview Prince Harry and I was like, how fucked up is it to be reading these storybooks as a kid? Every storybook is, if everything goes perfectly, they'll end up being you. And you're like, right. this isn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's fucking weird. Yeah. So I think the more we deconstruct the story, I think the healthier people can feel. And I have the same concern you do, which is like to talk about money in a way that's not like, I'm so fucking lucky to have, it feels dangerous. But at the same time, it's like, I feel like it's my duty to go like, it's great. If you have healthcare for your kids, that part's fucking awesome. Uh, yes, there are a lot of great stuff, but also on the other side, married to Kristen, it would appear we have a perfect fucking star-crossed thing. No, we're constantly in couples therapy. We tell everyone, like, I think it's our duty to go, like, decide what fantasy you want, because the fantasy to have is meaningfulness. If you can find a way to have meaning in your life, that is the fairy tale that gives, mm. I think. Yeah. I just forced you to co-sign on my own soapbox <laughs> with your book. <laughs> no, but I think that's true. I mean, my mom had this great sense of, my mom grew up, I call her in the book, the last Vanderbilt, because she really was the, you know, the last Vanderbilt whose birth made headlines and front pages of papers and whose death did as well and who lived her entire life in the public eye. And the last one who had been alive, who was born into that world, which really does not exist anymore. And yet she wasn't really of that time either. She always talked about feeling like a stranger in the Vanderbilt family. The first 10 years of her life, she was raised by her socialite mom who was off with her in hotel rooms in France. And she had a nurse and a grandmother who she loved, but she didn't know who the Vanderbilts were. She was forcibly sent to live with them by the courts in New York when her mother was proved to be unfit or shown to be unfit. But even when she lived with Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, her aunt, 
she didn't feel a part of that, just as I didn't feel a part of that. And I think that allowed my mom to kind of develop this own sense of herself and this own sense of meaning and this own sense of what was important to her. And early on, she saw the results of money around her. She saw all the machinations that were involved in, in having her taken away from her, her mother. And she developed kind of this rock hard diamond inside of her that she felt nothing could get at and nothing could scratch. And she spent all her life kind of propelling herself forward through lots of traumas and lots of sadness and lots of pain from the past because she wanted to be seen and heard and felt and make something of her own life. And I think that drive is a really important thing. I think it can be a harmful yeah. thing because it can make you never content, uh, but but I think it's important. I hope my child has a, some sort of a drive because I think that that drive will, will get one through. Yeah, I agree. And just to, to hear that story about your mom and go like, okay, yeah, so we're using the word privilege for her, certainly financially, but everything beyond that is just fucking straight trauma. The fact that you would be raised by someone other than your mother while your mother did God knows what in a hotel room, then you would be taken away from her, then you'd live with fucking strangers. Like, that's privilege. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? And same with Prince Harry. It's like, he, yeah, privilege, privilege, privilege. Uh -huh. And also a fucking animal in a cage at a zoo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you think about Prince Harry, I mean, I remember it was one of... When I first got at ABC News, I'd been doing all this stuff by myself overseas in war zones and stuff, and they didn't know what to do with me. And anyway, I went to cover, be part of ABC's coverage of the funeral of uh, Princess Diana. And I, I just remember, I was outside just doing it with my own little home video camera, kind of just shooting my own story. But I remember watching him pass by in that funeral procession. And I mean, I was, I don't know, I was 26 or seven at the time. And I, and I just remember thinking, this is friggin' criminal. Like letting yeah, this child yeah. walk behind his mom's, I mean, I know visually it looks stunning and it's very like British, but I mean, this is, yeah. is no one around here thinking like, this is horrific? It was insane. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's good to end yeah. on a positive note Oh like yeah, we that. love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, Anderson, besides you telling me that, no, in fact, we haven't met and me now understanding that, the real piece of the puzzle for me now is like, I thousand percent would remember meeting you because I fucking love talking to you yeah, really nice. sincerely. And I hope I get to do it a bunch more times in yeah, the future I like because I would remember this, this rhythm. So I thank you. I've also been checking out your tats because I'm obsessed with tattoos and been wanting to get a tattoo <laughs> sure, for sure. a good 40 years now. I actually found pictures my dad took of me when I was like nine <laughs> that he had drawn all these tattoos on my arms because I really wanted tattoos even back then. And I have on my Instagram, I have an entire file of just every tattoo I like, artists I like. It's endlessly, <laughs> this is one of the things I ruminate on. You should get one of the drawings your dad drew if you have a picture. <laughs> I thought, oh, I've thought about that, yes. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've thought that. Yeah, you'll probably end up just littering up your whole body with things for your son because that like seems to be what I'm doing. <laughs> I can tell you one thing about tattoos. <laughs> that makes sense. I tried to tell Monica this as well. I'm sure there's a voice in your head that's like, Oh my God, but it's permanent, it's permanent. I'm gonna, like, I'm making a decision. I'm gonna have a look at it. Will I regret it? Blah, blah. I promise you this. They're completely invisible to you. After like three months of having them, you will never, ever think of it again. I can promise you. And anyone that's got tattoos will tell you the same thing. Uh -huh. It's like, right now I'm absurdly aware of these two because I'm like, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere I look. And that'll go away in three weeks. I'll forget I have them. Yeah. So there's really no downside.
Right. All right, Anderson V. Cooper. Uh, it's been Ace a fucking Cooper. blast. <laughs> and good luck with the book. Vanderbilt, uh, Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. Vanderbilt. I cannot wait to read it, I'm telling yeah. you, because I fucking love the Vanderbilt story. Yeah, I hope you like it. I will. All right, be well. Thank cool. you. Cool, thanks. Thanks. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. It's counting. Oh my God, the numbers are counting? I was a little scared they weren't going to count. I understand. It took a long time for that thing to boot up. It did. And you just never know. We can't get too... Uh, confident. Too in egotistical. Our, well, sure. <laughs> slash confident in our equipment. Yeah. You got to have some humility. Exactly. That's going to break. Do you want me to play the couple of clips I recorded? Because it occurred to me like, wow, if this is for the rest of my life, I should start recording that. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, okay. Hold on. <laughs> oh, no. How's it going? It's still funny. Um, <laughs> relatively funny, though. Can you hear those? We, I those came are, across some hiccups about, I guess. <clears throat> okay, yeah, we're going on 20... Two hours of it? No, that 21. I got it at 9 o'clock last night. That's the uh, time the hiccup started. And they ran from 9 p.m. until all the way in the morning, right? On, you heard it all night long? All night long. And they went away for stretches today. A couple hours in the afternoon. That was a lot of hiccups. I think you're right. You can't hear them as well. Yeah. So you've had a rough couple of days. I got hiccups Friday night at 9 p.m. And yeah. they just went away this morning, Monday. Oof. And we don't know that they're gone for <laughs> We're good. We're not sure that they're gone for good. But you've gone, this is the longest you've gone. For sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I um, upped the the medicine game last night and, and got some Nexium or some shit that some serious Richard medicine. told me to get. Yeah, Eric. Ooh-wee. Anyway, it was a very weird weekend to yeah. be... Um, struggling with hiccups for 48 hours because you can't really enjoy yourself. If you start moving around, you, you know, you get the hiccup and then it turns violent. Oh. Like you're going to, you know, oh. let it rip. And I did let it rip a ton. Mm. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> weird, weird. First time of my life, 46 years. I'm really though. curious. I mean, I, I, I think it's probably acid reflux. Yeah. Would be my guess. That's a good guess. The look on your face is so funny right now. I'm scared. <laughs> What do you think is going to happen? I don't know. I'm oh. sad. Mm. I'm sorry. I mean, don't be sorry. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I got these hiccups. I picked up these hiccups. But they're, um, <laughs> I think they're gone. Oh, they're gone. It is crazy that when you look it up online, it'll say not to worry until it goes past 48 hours. It was like 52 hours. Like, it's crazy they know the body. Like, yeah, everyone just give the body a couple days to, yeah, to adjust. To figure itself out. Yeah. I guess huh. it falls in that like missing persons thing too. They don't want you to come in if the person's been gone six hours. They want you to give it like 48 hours. I know, but if you're the person who's missing someone for six hours, like you can't. I know. In 36 hours missing someone? That's, That's a tremendous amount of time. Yeah, waiting, <laughs> waiting the extra 12 sounds really gruesome. We got nervous you wouldn't be able to do a podcasting anymore. Oh my God, yeah. I, and I started to think like, oh my God, this whole thing's psychological. Like I was trying to wonder, had I gone to the emergency room, say on Saturday night, and was like, I just can't handle it. I'm throwing up every five minutes and I yeah. have these hiccups. 
And I was like, would they give me Xanax? Like, is something, is this some Anxiety. Yeah, is this like anxiety related? Is, is it a, a panic attack of sorts? Yeah, something neurological. Yeah. It could be. So then I was thinking, what am I stressed about? And then I was like, oh my God, I'm like manifesting that I can't do this thing I love because mm. I think I don't deserve it. Oh no. Well, why else would I think that? Like, why do we think always it's all going to get snatched Taken from away. us? Yeah. Because we don't deserve it, right? That's got to be at the core of it. Like, I don't deserve this. Well, it's not, I don't know if it's, I don't deserve it, but it's, this is way too good to be true. Right. The same thing, I right? guess. I mean. If you get down to the personal, like emotional thing that's happening, it has to be, I don't deserve this. Yeah, maybe. You do deserve it. I don't know if I do, but <laughs> <laughs> regardless. What I certainly don't want to happen is render myself unable to interview people because <laughs> I'm fucking hiccuping and puking. What if I have a little puke bucket next to the- Oh my God. We can't do any in person anymore. <laughs> if I have a little, it's like something I just got to work through. Oh my gosh. But can't you see the mind having the power to do that to yeah, itself? Absolutely. Like just ruin this wonderful thing because I don't think I deserve it. It's funny because I think you deserve it. I don't think I deserve it. No, you deserve it. <laughs> if I were the listener, I'd be like, well, what kicked this off? Great question. Great. A box of chocolates. <laughs> I mean, that was oh, the last ironic. thing I ate before all hell broke loose. Yeah. Someone, per the holidays, brought over a nice sampling of different chocolates with caramel in it, nuts. And I got carried away and I had too many of them and I didn't feel great afterwards. And then the hiccuping started. Yeah. And then it ran until today. It might be, it might yeah. just be as simple as that. I don't do well with sugar. Yeah. No you know? one really does. Yeah. It's not good for us. I bet, But as I've gotten older, I really like, I, it, it makes my stomach foul pretty hey. quick. So hopefully that's the lesson. Just no more sugar. Yeah. And. What about Oreos? Hmm. Those don't have sugar. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I had three Oreos when at my worst point I had eaten in like 18 hours and I was dying and I just let two dissolve in my mouth because oh. I, I had convinced myself it was like a protein shake. Sure. Like as long as there's no hard food in there, the hiccups won't be bothered. The things I convinced myself of, of in course. the minute of desperation are preposterous, but I kept doing it. Oh, yeah. And then the God. mints, I had to lay off the mints yeah. for a full 30 what hours. What about of, the toothpicks? Those two, I find that it escalated the burping. Shit. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, fuck. Well, I got these horrendous things. And I, there's no way I'm quitting nicotine on this day that I already feel horrendous, right? Oh, so I had to go to Lincoln and go, I have to go buy chewing tobacco. I'm really sorry. But I got to do it. Yeah. She's like, oh, okay. You think the nicotine and the dip is not going to well, exist? the nicotine and dip gets absorbed through your gums, so it doesn't go to your stomach. Ah. Whereas the mints dissolve in your mouth and you swallow them, yeah. and then the nicotine enters through your stomach. So, I, I, I mean, it made some sense. It makes a little sense. <laughs> I don't it know. does. It does yeah. actually make sense, yeah. But some of it probably still gets down your throat. I make a real effort to not let that happen because I don't want that anyways. Yeah, because throat cancer. Throat cancer. Yeah. Well, just and gross. And gross. And sure, gross. Sure, sure, all of it. People who have known who dip and they call they call it gutting it. Do you know this? No. I've told you. They swallow it. They swallow it, and that's called gutting it. They don't spit. That they, is... they and and I've told you. Yeah. It can lead to halitosis. Yep. And I can't have that. You cannot. No, <laughs> that would be a deal breaker. Uh, for and podcasting. Well, you need your breath to over smell Zoom. Good. Shit. Well, okay. I guess we're just back to Zoom. <laughs> but also, you couldn't handle it. 
You like couldn't sit next to me if Never. I had rank bread. No, Mm-mm. you and I are pretty intolerant of, I'm really intolerant of, yeah. let me speak for myself. No, I am. I am. Yeah. And I feel bad because yep. I know like. No one's picking out bad breath. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily it's, because they're not brushing their teeth. And it's stuff. not negligence. Yeah. It's like biochemical. Well, I had a friend, he has since passed. Okay. And he, he sued me. And he, and he overdosed. And, oh. and I love him. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, it was complicated. Layered. Yeah. It's really layered. But we would go to the movies a lot together. That was our favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we'd be sitting close enough that I could smell his breath in the movies. And, and then once I can smell breath. I know. It's the end. It's literally, it's all consuming for me. <laughs> I just smelled my breath. How's it doing? I think it's okay. Smell like chili? Yeah, I just, just ate chili. Nice <laughs> chili. Nice bit of bison chili. But see, the people who have bad breath mm-hmm. in this way, halitosis, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Chron- so- chronic sometimes halitosis. It's, yeah, chronic bad breath. Sometimes it's not all the way halitosis, I don't think. That's true. It's not relevant what they ate. I think so. You do? I do. Okay. I think like if... Like, I don't think my chili breath smells like halitosis breath. Oh, no, no. It smells like food for sure. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I do think, though, that you could have a really crappy diet and your stomach could be emitting fumes from... Yes. Yeah. That's probably Way past when it would smell like food. But you're right. It's not bad if someone's breath smells like cheese pizza. Right. (laughs) It's if it smells like they hadn't brushed. Jess calls it ginger. Oh, ginger. For gingivitis. Oh, (laughs) He says like, oh, that person has ginger. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, I like that. <laughs> it's cute. He makes things cute. The other day he said, oh, I'm Cuts Roland. And oh. I was like, what's that? <laughs> he said in high school, like, because he would eat so fast. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, my gosh. Reflux. Oh, my God. By the way, hiccups. Yes. Yeah. I didn't really want to out him, but uh-huh. Jess has had many bouts of this, what you've what you've experienced over the past two days, he's, he's an expert. Yes. So what's interesting is there was a moment in this dark weekend where I remembered that I was quite mean to Jess about his hiccups, but I'm about to start defending myself before I even own my guilt about, yeah, I was really mean to him and intolerant, but on like day five of it. Yeah. And I'm really, it was because I had determined as if I was a doctor what the cause of his hiccups. hiccups were, which was drinking. Yeah. And so I don't really have much sympathy for that. Yeah. But yet I ate a bunch of sugar. I guess I don't know why it's much Well, we don't less. know if that's why. What's that? Mine? The sugar, yeah. Oh, you're right. Regardless, I, I felt like I could have been kinder to him. Although I also needed him to stop. <laughs> God, see, I'm right back to where I started. I guess I don't feel that bad. I guess I feel like it's different enough. But I, what I felt like is I know how miserable I felt the yeah. last 24, whatever, 72 hours. And I was just trying to keep a good attitude for everyone because, yeah. you know, I hate being a drag. And and I felt like he probably needed some love in those situations yeah. when he had massive hiccups. I feel like the the boys were, were intolerant. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, what was happening with me is, again, kind of like what's happening right now, fear. Like uh. I have like this... I just feel very uncomfortable. Like someone's going to die. Yeah. Yeah, you always go right to someone's going to die. <laughs> or not even that, but just like that person's in pain. Try. You know, I don't like it. So Jess triggered that a little bit too of like, like this is hard scared. to be around because I'm, it's making me scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Cuts Roland. Cuts Roland is someone he made in high school. 
Okay. He would eat too much and cut his whole mouth up. Oh, from the, all the okay. Yep. And then wow. he would call himself Cuts Roland. Mm. <laughs> and he had done it again? Yeah. He, I mean, I, he didn't do that from food, but like he had like a cut in his mouth oh, or something. Okay. And he was just like, oh, I'm Cuts Roland. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a funny boy. Mm. How was your weekend? My weekend was Christmassy. Okay. My tree is beautiful. It really is. We're in your apartment yep. because they're they're chiseling out the back of the pool. It's loud. For the third time. <laughs> this is the third time. They're out there with chisels breaking it all apart. Oh my god. I, I, I mean these poor guys. Mm. They're what I mean, I can't imagine showing up for a job you've already done three times and getting started. It must be so overwhelming. It's like, oh my that. god, this is never gonna get Done. At some point, you just think, well, we can't do this for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know why. It's worked everywhere else, but it's not going to work it's here. It's not working here. Yeah. So I feel bad for them. But, anyways, so much chiseling. Anyways, we're at your apartment, and your Christmas tree is glorious. It's a real tree. It smells wonderful. I love it. It's really pretty. Yes. The whole apartment's got a really nice Christmas vibe. Thanks. You got a six and a half foot tall candle on top of your dresser. That's a ding, ding, ding candle. Kind of. Kind of. Hmm. Well, Anderson Cooper is also a cute boy. Oh, big time. Big so time. we can tie him into cute boy group. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Cute boy day was oh, Bradley. Oh, Bradley. That People figured that part out. Yep. It was Bradley and then someone else we have not released yet. But we're going to add Anderson into cute boy group. Oh, okay. I think so. Mainly yeah. for the ding, ding, ding. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my hugely large candle uh-huh. is- Inspired by cute boy number one? Yes, because he owns these candles. He had them in his apartment. And Cooper. They, uh-huh. Yeah. They made the whole apartment smell so good. Oh. Loved it. Oh. And you got one Bought now. one. But mine's huge. He doesn't have one this big. Yeah, I would remember it, I think. <laughs> it looks like a um, it was bathroom accident. trash can. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, that's it's exactly that size. the size. If yeah. you have a trash can in your bathroom. And a good size bathroom <laughs> trash can. Yeah, a good size wastebasket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has like eight wicks. I mean, it's oh, huge. Wow. It's huge. I didn't know that when I got it. I thought I was getting like a big candle, but but not like, like half of that size. That's kind of great, though. Generally, when you order something and it shows up, it's smaller than you were You're anticipating, right. which sucks. And yeah. this is twice the size of what you thought existed. It's going to last a lifetime, except I've been burning it a fair amount to make my apartment smell good. And then yesterday, I went to order another one okay. for a friend. Yeah. And they don't ship to the U.S. all of a sudden. That is so weird. I know. You got yours, what, a week ago? No, like right when we got back. Oh, okay. From Perry. Yeah. So they don't ship to the U.S. anymore. And so now this is so limited a dish. I can't burn it anymore. Oh, it's a collector's item yeah. now. Yeah. It's oh. worth so much. Oh, millions. my God. It's like Jordans. <laughs> can't wear them. Exactly. Anyway, cute boys. Cute boys. Anderson Cooper. Cooper Oh, my Cooper. God. That's a ding, ding, ding. That was Big right. Big time. That was Damn it. There. That was right Bradley in front Cooper, of our- Bradley Cooper, Anderson, Lee Cooper. <laughs> um. Okay, well, let me look at, into some facts. Also, this is the last fact check of the year. This Good year? Great year. Yeah. Look, I mean, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for the show? Yeah, great year. Oh, my God. Incredible year. Okay. Who owns the Biltmore Estate currently? Mm. 
You haven't been there, right? I have. You have been. My mom loves telling the story that we were on the tour of the place and we had walked by a room and they told us the acoustics were so good at this dinner table that was like 40 feet long that you could whisper on one end and hear it on the other. But there were ropes up so you couldn't go in there. Oh. And so we were on the tour and my mom all of a sudden realized she didn't know where I was at. And then she heard an alarm going off (laughs) and then she went in there and I was at that table trying to test out the acoustics. Of course you were. Yep, yep. Oh, wow. People never change. Mm -mm. Okay, today the company is still run by descendants of George Vanderbilt. The president and CEO is currently Bill Cecil Jr., the company employs over 2,400 people who maintain oh 8,000 acres of the Biltmore Estate Hotel, Winery, Restaurant, and Shop. It's a hotel now? Maybe there's also a hotel oh next to it Oh, my gosh. I want to do it. Well- It's so beautiful. It's crazy. Oh, I know. I've been- it, You've been to? Mm-hmm. Oh. It's incredible. But the Grove Park Inn is right there. Tell it's me about close. the Grove Park Inn. Oh my God, you don't know about Grove Park no, Inn. No, in Asheville, North Holy Carolina? Shit. Yeah, it's the best. It's the best. What? It's a hotel in Asheville. I didn't know we've both been to this place. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I went when I was little with my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took me there. Neil wasn't on the scene yet? Great question. I don't remember him. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so if he was, he was little. Okay. Like it must have been like 10 or 11. Okay. Or eight before yeah, he yeah. was born. Um, Eight or 11. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the Grove Park Inn is this gorgeous hotel in Ooh. Asheville. And you go in and there's like fireplaces and all this seating. It's very cozy. Oh. It's huge. Oh, hot tub and swimming pool? Oh, I'm sure. It's I'm, a must. I mean, come on. Yeah. And it's supposed to go at Christmas. So actually I've been twice. What? I've, I went to Asheville also when I was a grown-up lady with a friend, I met her there, my friend Kim. You did? Uh-huh. When was this? <laughs> Maybe like guessed, five years ago. Up until this very story, I would have guessed I knew 70% of your life, <laughs> and now I'm fearful I only know 50. That's, I didn't know you were a regular mysterious. visitor of Asheville, North Carolina, which is, as you know, my like fourth favorite town. You love it. Love I know. It. I've only been twice, though, so I can't, I can't claim it as like mine. You okay. Know? It was probably like five years ago that I went with Kim, and we went at Christmas because... Because Grove Park Inn at Christmas is like way what longer you did. than five years ago, but continue. You didn't do this while I knew you. No, yeah, I did. You did? Yeah, yeah. Asheville. Yeah, because I was at Christmas at my parents' house, and I left my parents' house for like two days. Drove to Asheville, met Kim. We stayed at a hotel, not the Grove Park Inn. How long is that drive? Three hours. Fucking nothing. Or four. You guys should go there all the time from Georgia. Six. Oh, well, okay. No, <laughs> I just don't know. Four sounds right. I just don't know. Oh, no, my my nail's breaking. Uh-oh. Oh, I have, I have Christmas nails. Yeah, they're incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Even though you don't like nails, you can appreciate them. Well, I think the paint job is really pretty. Shout out to Danny at Nail Boutique in Studio City because I had an inspiration picture and it was like, <laughs> oh, no. Like, you know, when I showed it to him, I could tell there was some panic. Uh-huh. Like, oh, wow. Okay. This is really tough. This is going to be a lot. Yeah. And I could feel him like... Tensing up a little bit? Yeah, like getting scared. And then I, I pivoted. I was like, well, actually, we can just do the top part. And he said, no, 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 we're going to do it like this. Oh, like, my gosh. Okay. He, took, wow. he took the challenge and ran with it. Wow. And it was a few hours, right? Yeah. Oh. And, <laughs> and he did such a good job. Yeah, he really did. They're incredible. And all the other technicians were like walking by and kind of staring. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's cool. 
That's great. Anyway, Asheville Grove Park in Christmas, ding, ding, ding. So it's beautiful there, but the, it's near the Biltmore. Right. So I don't know what hotel they're talking about. I'm curious. 2,400 employees seems insane. I mean, it's a huge But that's tourist many people. Thing. 2,400? I know. That's a small town. <laughs> well... Asheville only has 2,500 people. Oh, my God. It's keeping the the city alive. Only 100 people don't work there. (laughs) Okay. How much do private planes cost to book or own? I didn't look this up because I know you know. Oh. Will you tell us? I only know vaguely. Oh. Well, there's, it's such a huge conversation. There is, what is a brand new Gulfstream 650? Those are like $65 million. Oh my God. To and own. That to own, to buy one. Yeah. And that one will fly you around the world. It is a long range okay. uh, aircraft. Wow. I want to say the Boeing business jet is probably around 85 or 90 million. That's more? More than a G650. Yeah. The Boeing business jet. That's like. What probably Bill Gates has. Oh my God. Be, like, a, you know, bedrooms in the back. I thought you and, were starting at the top, but you were starting at the bottom. Yes, yeah, some people, I want to say Ron Burkle, this is all weird stuff to say, but I want to say Ron Burkle has a 747. I think a few cats have like 727, 740, like full commercial, full yeah, commercial airliners that have been converted. Who is Ron like, Burkle? Um, tr- Ron Burkle started Ralph's Grocery Chain, oh. sold it all for $4 billion or something like Oh my God. 18 years ago. And he has this investment fund called maybe Sequoia. Oh. Anywho, I think he has a 747. But now let me jump down to the next thing. Okay. Weirdly, and when I say they're cheap, obviously they're not cheap. But now you can own an 80s G4, which is a big plane. You can put like, I don't know, 13 people on it. Mm-hmm. You can buy one of those for about three and a half million dollars. Oh. So you're kind of like, oh, well, that's not terribly expensive compared to 65 million. Right. But the, the problem with these planes isn't at all buying them. It's um, maintaining them. They have to be updated. Like their avionics have to be mm. updated really regularly. And it's millions of dollars. Like it's... it's Right. You have to get them refurbished all the time with the engines and the avionics and... You know, you've got it in an airplane hangar. You got the pilot. It's crazy expensive to run, even if you owned it. Yeah. The dream is you own it and then you're renting it out enough that it ends up paying for your travel. But I think that's increasingly hard. Wow. Um, now, as far as like chartering, uh-huh. I and I could be wrong about this, but mm-hmm. I think to charter a flight from like LA to New York mm-hmm. is 50,000 one way. Got I it. think it's a hundred grand round trip. Wow. Okay, another cost question. Yeah. How much does a guide cost at Disneyland? Oh, I don't know because I've never bought one. Shit. Let Eric me, would know. Let me let me text him and see if he'll yeah, yeah, respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. Comma. <laughs> Doing a fact check. Period. How much does a guide at Disneyland cost? Question mark. It's crazy your phone gets that. You're basically whispering to it. Hi. You were like, hey, uh, I'm curious how much to go. <laughs> it knows me. Um, Disneyland is for gu- the guide? <laughs> Question mark, period, comma. <laughs> and it came out perfect. 
Eric has notification silence since when? Well, so there's an update now. Oh. Did you get your phone updated? Mate, I don't know. You can have this setting that tells people that their thing is on silent, which who gives a fuck? Everyone's is on silent. I don't need an oh, alert now. Oh, it just means it's on silent? Yes. Oh, that's silly. Which, whose isn't? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, that's new with this update that was this weekend. Maybe that's what gave me hiccups. Because of the change. Yeah. You're not good with change. Eric's notifications are silent, so I have to ask Google too. Hi, comma. What does a guide at Disneyland cost? Question mark. Unbelievable. Can you believe we've invented a device that can understand humans? I know. Like language is so complicated. Guests of Walt Disney World Resort can hire a VIP guide for $350 an hour for a minimum of six hours. That means the minimum cost for a VIP guide is $1,890, not including the cost of tickets. You can, however, bring up to 10 people with one VIP guide. Ooh. That's interesting. 200 a pop. Well, but then the tickets are expensive. Yeah, they are. It's going to be 300 a pop, maybe. <laughs> I, or the 350. Tickets are, are the tickets over 100? Let me look. Okay. Let me ask Eric. Uh, okay. <laughs> Eric, how much is a hot dog at Disneyland? And a 30 ounce drink. One day Disneyland hopper ticket, ages 10 and over, is 159 Okay. That's the low. That's the cheapest. Then it goes up from there. You uh, can get a 291 two ooh. day Disneyland hopper ticket. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, now I know. So yeah. you're going to spend a lot if you want a guide. But much cheaper than private air travel. Exactly. As <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say this, but that's it. There was no facts for. Well, those were facts. Oh, I guess they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a real delight to talk to him. It was an honor. Yeah. He, he, We've had a rash of guests actually recently that you and I want to take care of afterwards. Mm. Yeah, but Anderson is not like we do want to, but he's so competent. Oh, he's way more self-sufficient than we are. Exactly. But I want to help him enjoy everything. Yeah. You know? He seems burdened. Yes. As he said, when he was obsessing about uh, some story coming out, they didn't even know what. But yeah, he wrote he was a planning. State, but he wrote a statement for it, even though he didn't know what he was addressing. Yeah, well, probably ding, 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 because he doesn't think he deserves it. Oh, he does. He He's does. worked so hard. He does, yeah. He's so charismatic, so bright. Ding, 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 Christmas bright, Jerry, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I hope you have such a good... Christmas Day. You too. I um, hope you give Ashok and Nirmala a big hug for me. I will. And give your dad a kiss on the cheek for me and your mom a kiss on the lips for me. Okay. And then okay. shake Neil's hand for me. Okay. I'll be seeing my grandma. And say, good job, young man. Oh, okay. Well, that's from me. Okay, good that's, job, young man. That's from me. And then tell your grandma, mm -hmm. say that. Time and place. <laughs> That's what I say to her. Name the time and place. Let's time travel together, baby. And then I'll be back in time for our New Year's Eve Spectac Spectacular. Our live event at yeah, the Will Turn in LA. Yes, live event, Will Turn LA, December 31st. Come see us. Go on the website to get tickets at armchairexpertpod.com. And we'll see you on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Oh, my God. So fun. Love you. Love you. Merry Christmas. We are supported by Intuit. 
the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you yeah, on. Yeah, they don't been, teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy to use resources like getting a car loan with Credit Karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com slash education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education. 